I want to start with a story. In 1996, uh, the actor Edward Norton. Do you guys know who Edward Norton is? Oh, man, he's a phenomenal actor. Um, he received an Academy Award nomination for his role. Oh, yeah, a little Oscar. Yeah, I forgot. We got Oscars this week. Okay. Academy Award nominee for the uh, movie Primal Fear. Now, here's what happened in the movie Primal Fear if you haven't seen it. Richard Gere, uh, the actor, was a high-powered lawyer, Martin Vale. And he took on a pro bono case for Ed Norton's character named Aaron Stampler. Aaron is accused of a murder that Vale doesn't believe that he committed. One day, while talking to Aaron, Vale mentions something that, quote, flips a switch in Aaron, and an alternate persona, Roy, comes out. Vale, after this episode, realizes that Aaron remembers nothing, and he says that um, he says that it was like he had just lost time. So uh, he's in, on trial for the murder of this person. Well, the lights go on for Vale. Aaron has had an episode where Roy comes out and may have murdered this archbishop. But since the trial was already underway, he could not plead insanity. Instead, Vale decides to put Aaron on the stand to testify against himself in an attempt to evoke Roy out while he's on the stand. So he's going to badger him with questions and so on. Well, it works perfectly. Roy comes out as he's on the stand. He gets so angry, he actually goes to the prosecutor and squeezes her neck. He breaks out in anger, and the judge, knowing that he's insane, dismisses the case and sentences him to a mental institution. And uh, he'll soon get out after time spent there. Well, the scene of the movie that that closes the movie is Aaron... And uh, Aaron and uh, Vale, Martin Vale, sitting together in the jail cell. And he says, do you remember what happened in the courtroom? He says, he says no. He kind of stutters. says, no, 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 Mr. Vale, I don't. I just lost time. And, uh, and he said, well, Roy came out. The judge threw out your case. And it looks like you're gonna, you'll be getting out of here real soon. And the music starts playing. And he walks out. Vale walks out of the jail cell. And Aaron says, tell the prosecutor that I'm sorry about her neck. Which is the big turn in the movie. Because Vale now realizes that, wait a second, he does remember everything that's ever happened when he was Roy. And he comes back in and he says, how did you know that that was happening? And Aaron begins clapping. And he begins saying... He begins realizing that he has now figured this out. And what was awesome was, Vale says this. So you're telling me that there never was a Roy. And Norton's character says, Marty, come on. There was never any Aaron. In other words, the whole time, he had been deceiving him with this character named Aaron. I guess I just gave away a punchline. It's an amazing movie. You still need to go watch it. But here's what's cool. At the end of the movie, which that's the last scene, that's what you're left with. And you're left with this image that evil has won. That evil has won the day. That it really has won. The bad guy got away. And I actually want you to see today that that's what this psalmist is wrestling with. 
He is looking out into the world and he is noticing that the bad guys are winning. And it's not just that they're winning, but that he is tempted to join with them. I'll put it simply. When evil seems to be winning the day, says this psalm, you and I can't help but begin to question the real goodness of God. When evil seems to win the day, it's natural to look at that and go, God, where are you? The bad guys seem to be winning, right? And that's what this psalm is going to be about. And we're going to look at it in a couple of different, a couple of different headings. First of all, I'm just using the least three words. The illusion, sobriety, and then reality. In other words, we're going to take a look at what the world appears to be like, where sanity is recovered, and what is certain. And I'm hopeful that if some of you have these your own questions or longings when you find yourself in this psalm, that some of those questions and answers will, uh, questions will begin to be answered. Let's take a look. Look at those first 14 verses there. You'll have to scan them because we're going to go through them very, very quickly. But I want you to see what's going on here. From the beginning, the psalmist begins to say, I know that God really is good. That that is his starting place. That he is kind to those who are pure in heart. And then he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Now what do you see saying there? He's saying, I am losing my way. I am about to lose it all because of what I'm about to see. And what is it he sees? Look at this. In verse 4, he's talking about the wicked or the evil. He says, they don't have any pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That doesn't sound like a good thing in our culture at all. But you know what? If you were in an agrarian culture, you wanted to have a little bit of meat on your bones. That, you were rich if you had meat on your bones. Because to be a little chunky or to be a little, you know, portly was a sign of riches because you had the food to eat it. And you see that actually in our art, don't you? If you're, if you're an art major, you can look back into the time of the Renaissance and women were never painted like, you know, Cosmo models were today. They were always a little bit heavier. And the reason is, is because that was actually the sign of real beauty and what was attractive and the whole nine yards. So that's kind of just a little interesting. You can throw that away if you want. But let's keep going. Look there at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease, and they increase in riches. This is a picture of a man worn out with the way of things. He is on the brink of giving up on God because all that he sees is that those who don't follow God, remember that is the wicked, the evil ones, they appear to be getting away with all sorts of wickedness and that they're actually blessed in doing it. In other words, wickedness seems to be winning the day. Well, in his book, a guy named Neil Plantinga wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And it opens up with this story. A high-powered lawyer finds himself with his car stalled in a bad part of town. He manages to call a tow truck, but as he's waiting, these five thugs surround him and start giving him a hard time. The tow truck finally arrives, and as the tow truck driver is hooking up the car, the thugs start jawing at him. And now the tow truck driver pulls the gang leader aside, and this is what he says. Man, the world ain't supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. 
I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than the way it is here. Plantinga, the author, is saying this. That as we look out in the world, it's just not the way it's supposed to be. Now I just want to pause there for a second. Is that your assessment of the world that you live in? Can you look at your relationships and your friendships? Do you look around and see the world? And do you go, there's just something wrong with it. There's something ain't right. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. If you think that it's not, I mean, how do you account for all the things in the world that really suck? I mean, either you're left with what Buddhism says and says that all that pain and all that wickedness is really just an illusion for you to escape. Does that make sense? Or you can be like I call (laughs) a lot of the religious right in Christianity that looks at evil and sweeps it under the rug and says it just doesn't exist. Or you can be like the Bible and actually name it. Here's what I'm trying to get you guys to see. The psalmist is saying that things don't look like the way they should. You know why? Because they actually aren't. That in the world that we live in, there is real brokenness, real pain. And that the world that we live in is not an illusion it's not an illusion with respect to what you actually see. There's real pain. There's real evil. The wicked really do get away with stuff and it goes unpunished. Now we're going to see. Not forever. Not forever. But I just want to... I'm just trying to ask you to begin to think in those terms. Here's why. Because most of you, if you grew up in a Christian home, this is how you have learned. This is how you have learned to deal with stuff. You just sweep it under the rug. And that for you, Christianity is to plaster a smile on your face and to say that everything's okay. It's like you're not able to be able to say, you know what? Life really sucks. It sucks sometimes. And there's really, really hard things I have to go through. And I'm trying as best I can to follow Jesus. And here's what I'm trying to say. When you follow Jesus, if anybody ever tells you, come follow Jesus and your life is going to be easy, they're selling you a bill of goods. Because it's just not the case. Following Jesus does not mean that life is going to get easier. Not right now. It may in some ways, but not totally. Not this side of heaven. And I just want you to begin to get to see that because for most of us, we just don't think of Christianity in those terms. We think to experience pain or to be able to name something as not right actually means that now I'm less than a Christian. Does that make sense? Have you all ever experienced that? If you, if you call yourself a Christian and something sucks in your world and for you to be able to say, hey, that really does stink, you know, people around you might begin to go, hey man, you got Jesus in your life. Everything's supposed to be perfect. What are you doing feeling like that for? You need to be able to say, I'm sorry, that just doesn't seem to square with what the Bible is actually saying. The world really is broken. It really is. Sin is real. And the psalmist is seeing it all around him. And he's beginning to question the goodness of God. Let's take a look at the second point. He's actually coming to a place where sanity will be restored. Sanity, what do I mean by that? I mean that moment where you begin to wake up. It's like you're coming out of a dream. And things become become real. They become as they are for you. 
Um, I like to put it like that, like this. It's the moment when you get new information and everything changes. I'm going to be looking particularly at verses 16 and 17. So turn your eyes there, but listen to what I have to say. Before Laura and I were actually dating, my wife Laura back here, um, I really, really liked her. I thought she was smoking hot. I loved her from the inside out. I just thought she was great. And um, uh, I had sort of mustered up this courage over a couple of weeks to finally ask her out. And I was taking her home um, to uh, drop her off after we were to party together. And I was like, this is the moment. I'm sitting in my red Pathfinder. I've got her in the same car with me. I'm driving so she can't just walk out. Fellas, hint, hint. Ask a girl out face to face. Make it hard on them to say no. Am I right, Brittany? That's right. Don't text. Don't Facebook. Look them in the eye and say, do you want to get dinner? So I finally popped the question. Hey, I was wanting to know if you wanted to go get some dinner with me this Saturday. I had it planned out in my mind. I knew what I was going to wear. I knew what I was going to... I knew, like, where were we going to go eat? And she was silent for like five seconds. And that felt like an eternity. And she said, do you mean a date? And I said, that's exactly what I mean. A date. The response came, no. No, I can't. And I'm going to tell you what, this would happen two more times before she finally said yes. But here's what I want to get you to say. See, in that moment, it did not matter what I wanted, what I had dreamed of in my mind. It did not matter where I wanted to go out and eat. In that that moment, one thing mattered. She had said no. And that was the way that things were. Period. Now listen, why do I share that story with you? In verse 16 and 17, the psalmist walks into, do you see it there in 17? He says, I went into the sanctuary of God. And it was then that my eyes were opened. What is he saying? What does he mean when he says it was in the sanctuary? Well, the sanctuary was the place of worship. It was the place where he would have been coming before God Himself and actually seeing the way that things were. Now here's what I want you to kind of begin to see. For us to understand what had happened in that moment, we have to understand what worship itself is. Now, so I want to answer that question, what is worship? But I want to answer first of all, what it's not. Okay? Because if I were to ask you the question, what is worship? Some of you might say something like this. Oh, it's that thing that you have to do on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights even, or if you kind of go to a hip church, it might be on Saturday nights. And then if you're really serious on Wednesday nights, you might go. But it's the place that you have to go to sort of go pay your respects. Just like you would at a funeral. You know what I mean? You kind of just show up. It's the obligatory show up thing that you have to do. And uh, when you do it, God is happy with you and you've kind of done your religious duty. In other words, it's just about the externals, really. All you do is just kind of show up, sit in the pew for an hour, pretend like you're paying attention, and uh, then you can leave and you've sort of done your due diligence for the week. Well, that's not what worship is. 
Then some of us over here, we like to think of worship as this. Man, it is an emotional high. And you go to church, and when you go to church, man, it's like you and everybody around you, y'all are just jazzed up on Jesus. And you just can't wait for that chord progression of C, D, E minor, and G to start playing because you know when that guitarist starts strumming on the quarter note or the eighth note, your emotions just get ramped up. And you know exactly how to make it happen, right? That's exactly what's going on. And you leave Sunday afternoon at 12.20 and you're just like, man, that was awesome. And you're going, I had such a religious experience. And I actually want to tell you this. The Bible knows nothing of worship being a religious experience. Do you know that? So if you use this language, well, I just didn't get a whole lot out of worship today. You know what? You've you've missed altogether what worship really is. Now that's staggering for you and me because we're consumers at our hearts, aren't we? We're like, man, I'm going to church like I'm going to the food court. And y'all better give me something good, give me something quick, but don't give me something to fill me up. I just kind of want the Chick-fil-A. It's good immediately, but man, or like Crystal. Do y'all have Crystals here? White Castle? Gut bomb. It's like sliders at Dutch's. There, I'll throw it out like that. Those things are good going down, but you pay for it later on. That's what we think worship is. But the Bible talks about worship being like this. It is going before the very presence of God and actually seeing two things. Who He is and what He does. And then responding from there with all of our being. And what is God? Who is He? Well, He is infinitely holy. Infinitely just. And if you read the Bible, here is what the people who actually see God say. They say, I've seen Him. I'm a dead man. I've seen Him. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm undone. Because of who He is. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but I hear that and I go, man, I'm playing church on Sunday mornings. I'm just playing church. And then what is it He has done? And here's the key thing. What is it that God has done or what He's promised that He would do? And here's where the story comes in. I want you to think in terms of a story. God made a world, y'all. And it was beautiful. It was perfect. I want you to think of no pain, no problems, nothing ever, no divorce, no abuse, nothing. It was perfect. And then we, man, the race man, decided that we wanted to be God. And we screwed everything up. And we're still paying for it even now. But you know what God said in the story? He said, it's not always going to be this way. One of these days, I'm going to come back and I'm going to begin to put what you broke back together. And the person of Jesus, that work really began. And he promises one day that what you ruined, I finally will actually take care of to where you can't mess it up again. And in fact, you and me, we're going to be like we never were. We're going to be so perfect that you can't screw things up again. That's the story of Christianity. And I want you to believe that that psalmist in worship is hearing that story. He's hearing that story. It might not sound like that, but that's the arc that he is hearing. And he knows that if that is what is most true, then everything that follows in this psalm 
is actually commentary on what he thought once thought. It's actually going to cut against the grain on what he once thought. In other words, his sanity, y'all, was restored because he finally began to see the world as it really was. That God really does love His people. And that those that don't know Him will not last. They will not last. I'm not making this up. Look with me right there in the, in the Bible. It's, it's as plain as day. In verse 19, he says, in 18, he says, You set them, that is the wicked or the evil, in slippery places. That, make, that means they cannot stand. And in 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away. Now, some of you hear that. I want to go ahead and go to the next point, Michael, if you don't mind. Some of you hear that and you go, man, I've got problems with that. Now, allow me a moment and I'm going to come back to the idea that you would have a problem with God actually being somebody that judges. I'm going to come back to that. But before I do, I need to set it up. This last point that I'm trying to make is reality. In other words, he began to see the way that things actually were. I already mentioned that he was in worship. He began to see what was real. He began to see what was absolute. What was that? That God would redeem His people and that the wicked would actually perish. Look with me there in the Bible. He says this. He says, 21, My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and arrogant. And then in 23, he says, Nevertheless. You see in that word, nevertheless, everything changes. He says, I am continually with you. In other words, you're like the Father that holds my hand and reminds me that everything is going to be okay. It's like being reminded of the story that you're in, that the story really does end happily ever after. That's what's going on here. And he goes on to say, whom have I in heaven but you? I don't, I don't want anybody else because of this news that I've received in this sanctuary is actually deeply, deeply comforting to me. And it comforts my soul because I know that you are with me. And then if you are with me, it doesn't matter who else ha- is with me, what else happens, but that my life really will be okay in the last analysis. And this is also true, and I come back to my point, that the bad guys really do lose. I say that with trembling. But they really do lose. And some of you go, I don't believe in that God, Ryan. I mean, that's the God of the Old Testament. Or I was taught to believe something else, that God is a God of love. And I want to tell you that you cannot have a God of love without a God of justice. You have a lesser God. Here's what I mean. If one of my girls is being threatened by a bully on the playground, they don't go to preschool yet, but you get the image six years from now or something, and some boy wants to come up and, pl- and poke, with, poke at him, what do you think my fatherly instinct is? Yeah, that's right. Knuckle sandwich, you know? And look, look now oh, yeah, please, continue being mean to the people that I love. That's the, God, that's the God of love. That really is the God of love. 
Think about it again like this. Perhaps um, you saw The Bachelor on Monday night. What happened? For those of you that watched it, I don't watch, I'm, yes, I have to watch, well, I'll watch it with Laura. I love watching it with her. Um, and one of the things that happened was this. Des, she was on a date with Sean. And in that moment, what happened was some dude came in and started saying, Des, I love you, I love you, I love you. And Sean looks at her and he's like, whoa, you better back up, dude. And he was ready to throw down a little bit. And the reason was, was because Sean had feelings for this girl named Des, who he eventually kicked off. Sorry to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, but that's what happens. And the point is, though, as he saw her being threatened, their relationship threatened, he did what? He protected. Now, I come back to you and I say this. Do you see that to have a God of love, you have to have a God of justice? Otherwise, your God lets, lets you get beat up. He won't defend you. Because He's got to be loving to everybody. Your God of love without a God of justice, He can't be kind to you. Not when people are picking on you. Not when the world is set against you. Because if He is, He's actually being just. Do you see that? That's the tension that rests. And I'm telling you here that the Bible is saying that God will defend His people. And the bad guys really do lose. The people that don't know Him. The Bible says this about people. He says there's two types of people. Either you're God's or you're against God's people. That's what He's saying. And if you're with me, God says, I'm taking care of you. And everybody else, I'll take care of them too. But in a different way, of course. And that's meant to be a deep comfort for you and me. Because if you've ever had anybody come after you, or if you've ever experienced pain, you want somebody to defend you. You want somebody to dadgummit put their hand down and say, enough. That this wrong is real evil. And don't tell me you don't. Because I know some of you, when your parents get divorced like mine did, you don't want somebody to say, well, that's just the way things go. You want somebody to look at you and say, that's not right. That shouldn't be. And one day things will be made perfect. They will be put back together again. And that's the story that the psalmist has come in contact with. And he's saying, because of that, I can now look back at the evil ones, at the wicked, and say I, they're, 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 they're ruined. In other words, he's able to look at this and answer the question, what is going on here with this? God is absolutely, utterly in control of absolutely everything. And His promises will never, ever, ever fail. And if you are one of His children, you can rest in that tonight. That's the story. There it is. That's where real sanity is. That's where real, that's where what is real can be found. I just want you all to begin to think in those terms. Let me close with this. Um, when I was a kid, I loved magic tricks. I don't know, maybe I was just a dorky kid. Uh, but um, my dad would used to take me and my brother to this little magic trick shop. And every time I would go in there, the little dude, behind, the guy behind the counter would do some trick. And I would just be amazed. I was like, how, how did he do that? How, why, that was amazing. And then guess what? I would spend my 20 hard-earned dollars and buy the dadgum trick. 
And then, you know what happened? The magic was ruined, wasn't it? Because I knew how to do the trick. I knew what the secret was. In other words, I knew the illusion. Right? And I purchased the, the toy. And my sanity, I came to know how things really were. Because you know what? At the end of the day, rabbits don't go into hats. And uh, little red sponge balls, they don't just disappear in the midair. And you know what? You, you really can't uh, you know, pull flowers out of your sleeves unless they were there beforehand. Sanity being restored to what is real. I want you to know this. The psalmist is getting us to see that God's story and His promises are true. That He loves sinners and that He changes them to follow after Him. And the way that He does this is quite amazing. You see, you and me, if we're Christians, we were once the wicked ones that this psalm talks about. We may have said that we loved Him, but in our hearts, we didn't. And God, do you know what God did? Do you know where the infinite kindness of God does? God makes you and me an actual believer. He causes us to believe in Him. And if that's the case, if that's really the case, that means that you and me, and that anybody else who believes this and who owns this, can actually know that this story is true for them. That God really does have your back and that the story ends well.